Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life, and life in the theatre. My guest this week is the winner of five Olivier Awards, five Olivier Awards, four Evening Standard Awards, three Critics Circle Awards, two Turtle Doves, no, uh, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Directors Guild. He was director of Nottingham Playhouse from 1973 to 78. He was producer of Play for Today in its golden age on the BBC from 1978 to 1981. But you probably know him from the extraordinary time in the history of the Royal National Theatre when he was artistic director from 1988 to 1997 and presided over this just fabulously creative moment in the Nationals history. He's fellow at the Royal Society of Literature. He was knighted in 1997. He was made a companion of honour in 2017. He is decorated up the wazoo. He is the brilliant Sir Richard Eyre. And it was just an immense joy to sit down on a chilly January afternoon recently, 2023, at Richard's house in West London, and take a little walk around this extraordinary life, this extraordinary life that began in this most unartistic of surroundings in the rural uh, West Country of England, and took him via the front row of the theatre, watching the Tiller Girls, to an extraordinary theatrical epiphany, the first time he ever went to see a proper play, and you'll hear who he saw and what he saw. And his life as a young and struggling, sometimes wonderfully happy, sometimes wildly depressed actor, before he became this titan of the British theatre. And all the while, as you'll hear in our conversation, never quite feeling like he could credit that he really was that person, that he really deserve this extraordinary reputation that he has. It's a, it's, a, it's a very fascinating conversation, riddled with sort of self-doubt and gratitude to other people in his extraordinary journey. And I'm sure there have been many people. He talks brilliantly about people who are part of your luck. It's a wonderful phrase about, about the way in which other people have helped him along the way. But I loved our conversation because <laughs> Richard seemed almost bewildered by the, the the extraordinary achievements he's he's created and still and still uncertain that he can take any of the credit for it 
gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginners. Mr. Air and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginner's call. It is funny coming back after a long period of time. Have you ever lived away from... Three months is right. the longest. Doing a movie or something. I've been three months in New York. Four months is right. my longest in New York. No, mostly like six weeks in Germany or France or right. you know working. But no. And, what's, and and so the West Country, or, or did you move around a lot? Being a no, 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 uh, no. I was born in Devon and Devon. and then moved to to Dawson. And do you go back there? No, God no. <laughs> <laughs> Are you recording? I am. Oh, Do you oh, mind? Right. I mean, this is no, no, no. I mean, no, mostly no. this whole this is no, what no, the whole no, thing no. is made up of sort of vague, um, sort of preamble. No, I was. It was during the war. My parents got married, nineteen forty, mm. the day France fell, and my mother was nineteen, and their honeymoon was in the Great Northern Hotel, the hotel. At Euston or St Pancras. Yes. And my mother had to get a room for her nanny, who had brought her up oh, wow. from a baby. My mother's father died when she was 11. Her mother died very soon after they got married. And then my mother was left with this household Amanuensis. appendix yeah. of this slightly miserable woman who, in effect... I grew up with. Wow. And I'm sort of your de facto grandmother. Yes, because, in fact, both my grandmothers were dead. But this nanny, uh, as she was known, Nanny Eyre, of course, she was known. I mean, she, she sort of wasn't allowed her own identity. Tall, sad, cavernous-faced woman, and always arguing with my mother about who knew anything about bringing up children. Of course, my mother knew nothing, according to the nanny, because the nanny had brought her up from a baby, so how could she know anything? So I grew up really feeling a sort of changeling, which was confirmed by the fact that my sister and I sort of had nothing in common with our parents, because my sister was very... drew very beautifully and became a, eventually became a landscape architect. And I got interested in the arts. But there was nothing in Dorset, if you're interested in the arts. I mean, you might as well have been interested in, in climbing skyscrapers. Right, right. It, it was just... <laughs> I didn't actually go to the theatre until I was nearly 16. Oh, really? Except to see The Crazy Gang. Do you know the Crazy Gang? Yeah, I remember, I remember the name. I don't think I've ever seen any the of them. The Crazy Gang were, I think there were five of them. Uh, Bud Flanning and Nervo and Knox, oh, yeah. um, Monsieur Eddie Gray, and the Tiller Girls. And, and so my dad would take us. They were always at the Victoria Palace. Right. And we'd sit in the sun in the front row. Wow. And I couldn't understand this because you were sitting back looking at... What in in my memory were gigantic thighs, <laughs> fishnet stockinged thighs of these chorus girls, like a Botero painting. Uh, absolutely. So you were looking at essentially 
looking at the fannies of, of you know, a row of high-kicking girls. Do you, do, you, do you think there was any reason why your father would perennially rebook the front row for that yeah, reason? He was, he, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, got it. He was, um, I mean, he had two great, three great interests, which were horses, which were his great passion, yeah. drinking and and sex. And his motto was, enough is too little, too much is enough. Um, and he he certainly lived by his mantra. You didn't go to see a set foot in a proper play? No. The first play I went, I had a school friend who lived in Bath, and his father was a doctor. They were keen theatregoers, so we went to the Bristol Old Vic and saw a play called Hamlet, mm. which I had never read. And an actor called Peter O'Toole playing Hamlet, <laughs> oh whose hair at the time was your colour. It curly hair and, and a Roman nose. A rich, dark brown. It was a, a rich, dark brown. Flecked with grey, in um, my case. And in, in Peter O'Toole's case, wasn't right. flecked with grey and certainly wasn't flecked with blonde. Right. And then he dyed his hair for Lawrence of Arabia yes. and had his nose fixed. He was, as you can imagine, incandescent. So you knew nothing about Peter O'Toole? He wasn't yet a movie star? No, 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 no. And you didn't know how Hamlet went? No, I didn't. If you can remember it, what did you think of that performance, of him, of the experience of the play that you didn't know? What do you remember of it? Visceral energy is what I remember. This guy who was quicksilver... He spoke very fast. I can't stand it when people speak Shakespeare slow. And it's intolerable when, you know, you see these days when to be or not, and you think, just get on with it, for God's sake. You know, because the thoughts, and you know that Shakespeare was the first buzzing, and it was just like somebody talking to you and, and... crystal clear uh-huh. I mean for for me who it's not quite true that I hadn't heard a word of Shakespeare because I used to walk, work backstage at school and then after I'd had my epiphany the Hamlet epiphany I did then I was, did play Mark Antony and I played Benedict to a a, a male Beatrice uh-huh. have you ever read biography of Balzac. No. Uh, I don't mean Balzac, I mean Berlioz. No. Berlioz. Oh, the the great bolt of lightning when he... When he saw Hamlet and fell in love with this Irish actress who he stalked for years, eventually married. It was a complete disaster. But he said, you know, that the whole of the universe opened Uh. up for him. And he didn't speak any... English at the time. Wow. So I did have, it really was a, a, an epiphany. The whole of the universe opened up to Berlioz, and you really felt that sense of the breadth of what this art form could do. I thought this is kind of wonderful. <sighs> I, I just, just thought, this is wonderful. Yeah. You know, I'd seen movies. You know, we had the Plaza Cinema in Dorchester and... and the palace in, in Bridport, right. and the Odeon in Weymouth. So we were spoiled. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, the one in Dorchester, 
a plaza in Dorchester. And the guys used to come in in vans from the country. And you'd say, hey, get her there, get her over here. And um, quite often the manager used to come and switch the lights on. And he'd say, if you boys don't settle down, we're not going to show the film. <laughs> it's pretty much like that in the cinema now. Is it's, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite, it gets quite riotous. It's nice to know that in, in Bridport in the yeah. 50s, 60s. 60s yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was all kicking off. Too. Uh, we, yeah, we're teddy boys. How, what do you remember of you as Mark Antony and Mark Antony, Julius Caesar, or in yeah, Antony no, Patrick? Julius Caesar. Yeah. What do you what do you remember those before? How do you remember feeling doing Benedict and doing Mark Antony? Mark Antony, I thought I was on top of the world. Yeah, I, I was surfing a big wave. Yes. Oh, pardon me, a bleeding piece of earth. I mean. I'm meek and gentle with these butchers, and you know that. Speech which ends up cry with is Arte by his side hot from hell. Yes, I thought cry havoc and cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. I mean, come on, for a young man with hormones revolving, uh, that's the speech, isn't it? So um, that affected me so much that uh, my housemaster was very worried. Um, I I became very. Bolchy. Were you letting slip the dogs of war? I, I was in class. I did eventually get pushed out. So, really? Yeah. But I, I was very effective. He said, perhaps playing Mark Antony has got to your head. <laughs> and, and in a way, he was right. And interestingly, I was reading biography of John le Carre the other day, and this guy who was my housemaster, a guy called Frank King, taught David Cornwall did he? French and German anywhere. I didn't know that at the time. And the other thing I didn't know at the time, this was Chauvin School, and I had a study, and my study, I learnt 40 years later, had been occupied by Alan Turing. Gosh, really? And when I was there, of course, Turing, who had committed suicide not long before, was not mentioned. Oh, really? At all. Really? No. He was the... In spite of the fact that the school was, of course, riddled with homosexuality, you know, both among the staff and and boys, it was never spoken of. He was never this great, great man. Yes, well, I bet there's been some reappraisal since, or at least I hope there has. Well, Uh, 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 Benedict, what do you you remember of your Benedict? I do much wonder that one man, seeing how much another man may, something his behaviour, be a fool when he dedicates his behaviour to love. To to love. love. Um, what yeah. do I remember? Not fancying Beatrice. <laughs> I guess <laughs> that's fatal. <laughs> but when I became an actor, I I used to do that speech, you know, from my Shakespeare. It's a great speech, yeah. Because of course he's going through it. He's yeah. he's yeah. falling in love. We starts talking, doesn't he? About um, he says how implacably fixed against falling in love. Yeah. What an idiot, Claudio. Claudio, is. such For, a man is Claudio. Yeah. yeah. And then he says, uh, "May I be so converted and see with these eyes?" I think not. Yeah. And then he goes. Uh, her hair, 
shall be. You know, sort of, uh, I, I do want an intelligent woman. Uh, don't not one that one that doesn't talk too much. <laughs> it just goes through yeah. these. Have you played extra, it? I have twice. Uh, twice, yes. Yeah. Once at university, and then I did it again in New York. Oh, it's extraordinary, Richard. I re- don't know whether you ever had this. Sounds like you did with Mark Antony, but do you know when you have those parts where you feel like he's my guy? Yeah, he's yes. my guy. Yes, I saw um, John Heffernan just bumped oh, into him recently. Yes. He just played it at the yeah. National for Simon yeah. Godwin. And he not long finished. And I said, do you miss him? And he was rather struck by the question. Yeah. And then he said, yeah, I do. Yeah. And how could you not miss that I work? I do happen to think it's one of the greatest, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say, the greatest scene in all Shakespeare. But the wedding scene, you know, the worst yeah. wedding in the world in Much Do About Nothing, where Claudia denounces what he thinks Hero yeah. has done. At the altar. Yeah. I mean, you can never accuse Shakespeare of not finding the hottest moment in any part of human behavior. And then Benedict and Beatrice, who... uh, Oh, is that the the kill Claudia? It's still the same scene. Yeah. When they when they're left alone together on stage, and of course yeah. Beatrice is inconsolable because her yeah. cousin has been humiliated. Yeah. You know, they're pretending she's dead, and they confess their love to each other, still in this state. And then he says, "Tell me what I can do for you." And she says, "Kill Claudia," and that's all one scene. I yeah, mean, I think it's just extraordinary, it's wonderful play, and just I've never seen a production that doesn't fuck it up with the dogberry scenes. Really. Have you ever directed it? No, I haven't. Huh, interesting. No, I've... Um, I mean, this is sort of perhaps chapter two, is that I didn't, I didn't direct anything for years. I never directed anything when I was at Cambridge. Right. Except for a short film with Eric Idle. Oh. And Graham Gardner. Gosh, these extraordinary people. So, no, I just did a lot of... Acting. acting. Yeah. And you were a okay. professional actor. I was a professional actor. Yes. In those days, well, you know that amateur dramatic theatre, the ADC theatre, yeah. is sort of quasi-professional, isn't it? Sure. Because it's, it's so wonderful. It's funded by the university, yeah. and, and I'm sure it still is, and run by the students. Yeah. And there wasn't grown up in sight. Right. I mean, Trevenan was sort of king, was like running the ADC. And I guess I did a couple of plays a term. And my contemporaries were John Shrapnel and Michael Pennington, Jonathan Lynn, Stephen Frears. I was in a production of Ivanov with Stephen. We were sort of sitting around the table playing cards. And he said, it'd be interesting if... We substituted real vodka, wouldn't it? I mean, how would that be? We should really do that to see. Did you really do it? Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> Absolute disaster. Absolute disaster, yeah. It's um, like trying to do that in Who's, in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or, or yeah, Ice Man uh, Cometh. Uh, uh, yes, a Long Day's Journey. <laughs> long Day's Journey, yes. <laughs> Which you've had experience of. Yep. My God, how extraordinary idea. But you, I probably for the first couple of drinks, you must have thought, yes, oh, yeah. yes, I'm yes. close, exactly close to the source yeah. now. But the the, <laughs> the fatal desire for um, laughter that you know, you just it just you can feel it creeping up in you. 
there's something about the threat, the danger that an audience <laughs> sitting out <at home>, there <laughs> you can't <laughs> control it. But and that anyway, I got an agent while I was at right. Cambridge, so I thought I was made. Acting is so much depends on confidence, doesn't mm. it? On front and. Because my confidence hadn't really been pierced, I thought well, this is this is fine. Yeah, I'm, people say I'm 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 good. So, and I was in a film directed by Clive Donner called Nothing Nothing But the Best. I was cast by a very famous casting director of her time called Miriam Brickman and Alan Bates. Yeah, I had dinner with Alan Bates. Gosh, Alan had his. Hand on my thigh. Did he? Um, Goodness. Sweet. Beautiful young man. I mean, both of you probably. <laughs> um, and then I, I got work. You were, you were a young happening actor. You were getting yeah, work. Yeah, I was. And then I... So what's, yeah. what, what, what Then stopped? I went to Leicester. Right. And did a few plays there. And then I was in the musical, the Christmas musical, yeah. which is The Boyfriend. Right. And I couldn't stand The Boyfriend. And also... I just had to face up the fact I couldn't really sing and dance, ah. although I could sort of just get by. And there was a, an atmosphere of close to mutiny in the male dressing room, or in the chorus dressing room. There were a couple of male stars who were very full of themselves. But the male chorus dressing room, we were like soldiers in the First World War, we were so disconnected uh. and morale was, we were in mud up to our eyeballs. And we used to convince ourselves that for the voice, that port and brandy was, was very good. So you always had port and brandy on the go. And then we started this game of, um, it was sort of chicken that the last person to move to get into makeup and costume was the victor of the day. Right. So we would just sit in this line, <laughs> not moving, but um, and and seeing if Anyone somebody was flinch. flinching along the line. You had to. It was white shirt, white trousers, white plimsolls, bit of five and nine on stage. You know, it's nicer, much nicer in 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 Nice. <laughs> um, and one night there was. A girl in the chorus, um, the number ended up with uh, high kicking. You know, the, the, the women, you, they fell into the man's arm. Mm. And halfway through the number, she was, she, I'd forgotten to put my knickers on. And I started to laugh. And, <laughs> and actually, I dropped, I dropped her at the end of the number because I couldn't work out how to, you know, to sure. preserve her modesty. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, I really, this is kind of shameful. I really shouldn't be doing this because I can't do it. I'm just not able to do it. But also, did you think there was something a little tawdry about it? No, I didn't. No? No, no I, I didn't think it was glamorous. Right. But I did think this is the life, you know. Oh, okay. I mean, I was in terrible digs where there was a, you had to put sixpence in yeah. a gas meter and if you didn't have the sixpences, you were cold. The, the only time I have been close to topping myself was in that room 
at Christmas one year. So it was the best of times. This was was mad fun and games backstage and then properly bleak. Properly bleak. But then I had this idea that I would like to do a Sunday night production with the guys in the cast and the chorus. Right. And I asked the the guy running the theatre if I could do a play called The Knack. Angelica. Yeah. Yeah. Three men, one woman. He said, yeah, sure. And so I did this, and I became illuminated. I I was switched on by this. Mm. So I would spend sleepless nights thinking, I can't wait to get to rehearse. Mm. And found that the whole thing of, you know, how you choreograph a, a show and direct it sort of didn't feel completely inaccessible. And then the show went on, and it happened to be seen by a lot of people, one of whom was John Neville, right? who came with Judy Dench. So that's when I first met Judy. And he offered me a job. And then the guy running the theatre, who was called Clive Perry, said to me, well, you have to make a choice. You know, are you going to continue to be an actor or be a director? In my opinion, you should be a director. I thought nobody has ever spoken to me and said you could do... Mm. I mean, I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer. Right. That was, um, so nobody, and my father didn't think I should go to university. He said, you know, I don't see the point of it. He said, I, I just don't know why you don't go and fuck your way around the world. Goodness. Bold advice. And he thought doing English literature was a complete waste of time. Right. And my chosen profession was insane. So Clive and, and John offering you this yeah. new life, did that feel like it? they get, sort of gave you permission to release yourself from acting? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I felt like I was shedding a sort of carapace yeah. of presentation and yeah. self consciousness i mean and a sort of lurking narcissism and all that stuff that if you can't do it yeah just corrodes you. yes yes if you can do it right like you can then it it sort of gives you power and in Validates my case your lurking narcissism narcissism well there has to be an element but of course. in my case it just right poisoned me right so i i I became catatonic. Yeah, no, gosh, I, I couldn't go on a stage. Do you think your acting, the acting career you had, and obviously this extraordinary feel you have in your body still for it, has influenced you as a director? By which I mean, silly little memory, but I remember when we did a play together at the old Vic, Flea and Harrier, Fado Farce, in a John Mortimer adaptation. I remember you getting quite cross one day. And I remember, as you were getting cross, which is not, you know, an unknown thing for a director to do, I remember being terribly struck by how you suddenly physically appeared. Your feet were very planted on the floor, and your gestures became very, very strong and theatrical. You went from being a person in a room to being... The biggest person in the room. Does that make Does that make sense? And it just suddenly seemed like there was a there was an actor's side yeah. of your self-expression. Um, 
Possibly. I'm not... Best place to judge. I'm not in any place to, to judge. Right. And if that's true, it's... I wouldn't have... I would have done it unselfconsciously. Right. Do you think it's made you better with actors? Do you think you understand oh, them in some way? I, I really, really like actors. Yeah, I didn't And that. that's quite unusual for a director. <laughs> yes. I mean, honestly, I'm still shocked when hearing some directors talk about actors and you think, you fucking prick. <laughs> no. You get on and do it. Yes. You know so much. Yeah. You do it. Yeah. Good actors are absolutely invariably intelligent yeah. and they think fast. Yeah. Even if they're not witty, their brains work yeah. fast and... I like that yeah. a lot. You know, of course I love the I love the banter. I did a film, television film with Anthony Hopkins and Ian McKellen. Of the dresser. The dresser. Yeah. And we rehearsed it a couple of weeks before we shot it. And after two or three hours of story say, look, I'm I'm sorry guys. <laughs> I really, really I'm going to have to say we must concentrate on this script. You see, that should be my podcast. With just a microphone in that rehearsal room. It was well, Tony, of course, is a fabulous scrap on Tony. Yeah. And you get all the voices. Oh. And and also almost perfect memory. I mean, he could remember meeting an American GI when he was four and wow. he could describe it and and you know there was this fighter plane going overhead and and Ian is no slouch in the sure. anecdote department. And of course that's a play, famous Ronald Harwood play, about an actor manager, great old uh, sort of ham of the old school, and his dresser, the person yeah. who was and, and and Hopkins was the uh, was the actor. Yes. Based on Donald Wolford. Donald Wolford, of course, yeah. And Ronald Harwood had been his dresser. He had, that's absolutely. Right. That's right, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but you, of course, you do have to stop at a certain point and do some work. Uh, uh, and then, so I'm very, very struck reading about you, Richard. And by the way, it's an extraordinary thing. Someone you know, we've known each other and known each other a bit and worked together. But, but then to do what I've been doing for this podcast, which is go back and sort of look back over these these lives, these careers. I mean, it's just extraordinary, the work you've done. Extraordinary. Do, do you feel that? Do you get a sense of that? Yes, but I was slightly shifty when you used the word career. You know, people thought the arc of your career. I think, what arc? <laughs> what career? Because... I mostly think of myself as doing one piece of work right. and then right. moving on and doing another piece of work. I never thought, transparently, I never thought I would become a director. I never actually thought I'd become an actor until somebody said to me, you should act, this agent. And I think to a fault in my life, I've relied on people saying, why don't you do this? And the things where I've taken the initiative and thought, I will do this, are quite few, but quite successful. Yes, you did but, run the National Theatre for 10 years, <laughs> where, where there's quite a lot no, of no, saying, but, why but don't you do this? What happened is that Clive Perry said to me, do you want to be an actor or director? Yeah. 
Well, I knew I was an actor, so as yet director. He was then my patron for years. He went to the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh and took me with him as his associate and sort of gave me, opened the, the chest full of world drama and said, what would you like to direct? So there was this guy who's sort of half-educated because, you know, I came so late to drama and, and literature. And then I started to, I am an autodidact, really. Yeah. I really, I then started to educate yourself, educate myself and, you know, look at Shakespeare and look at all the classics that I knew nothing of. And Do you think those fresh eyes that you talked about, do you think that's been a real strength? It has been a strength, but it's also been, been a weakness because I've always felt insecure about mm. it. And and this is leaping ahead, but one of the worst mistakes I made when I took over the National was thinking, oh, I'll do a couple of classic plays. And I did a Hamlet and I did The Changeling. And it was, I can see, a sort of determination to prove that I was sound on the classical repertoire. Whereas, actually, what I'd done at Nottingham Playhouse was pretty well exclusively new plays. Right. And then I went to run Play for Today. And mm. So it was... Trying to prove something. It was trying to prove something yeah. that I seen I was absolutely pointless, right, right. but was very, very important to me, and particularly taking over from Peter Hall, yeah. who was the sort of, you know, the, 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 the kind of mountain of... Classical yeah. theatre, yeah. you know, byword for the Shakespearean canon. I think I've been a late starter. I've grown up late, you know. Mm. I mean, when listening to your podcast with Sam, mm. I think, well, Sam was sort of grown up. You know, his sort of view of theatre and the sort of magisterial take on theatre when he was a student of, I mean, you can say it's, yes, you know, he's not short of burning ambition, but there's a lot of knowledge there. Yeah. I think there's a lot he, of learning. I, I, I think he'd say, and I think he did say in that podcast a bit, that it was built on relatively shaky foundations, which isn't to say there wasn't real substance there too, for sure. But funny enough, in reading about you, I was struck all over again by Peter Brook and his influence on you. Yes. And when I was reading about him, you writing about him, Brook directing Schofield at the age of whatever it was, early 20s. I mean, it's, it's at least enough to put alongside Sam yeah. with Judy Dench at 24, you know. Yeah. And, and I was thinking very much about that because you saw didn't you wasn't that a formative yeah, experience it, it for you seeing was. his the, the the going to stratford to see wars of the roses and peter hall's yeah and john bottom and peter brooks lear right. Schofield's lear and particularly the lear but but no both of them i didn't know you could do these things right. in a theater it was a further epiphany to the the, the hamlet epiphany yeah. How old would you have been? Uh, 19, I think. Oh, gosh. 18, okay, so 19. it really was about that time of great yeah, ferment. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, but when I came to do Lear with Ian Holm and Peter came to see it, I thought, I'm going to die if 
Peter doesn't <laughs> approve of this. Oh, and he's just at the end, just embraced me. He said, I, I love that. I loved it. So it's, that was that was the circle complete. And it's by far the greatest production of Lear, your one oh, of the oh, that, that, you. that I've ever seen. Thank you. And I, it, it's very interesting to me. Now, listen, I don't want to come over like a sort of pound store psychoanalyst here, but the stuff about fathers, I think, is yeah, really, yeah. Is really oh, interesting to me. I'm, uh, forgive me if you don't want to. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, bang I, on about it, but fathers. You know, knowing how you you've already talked about how your dad sort of shoved that idea of what you were doing away. He was a naval officer, He was right? a naval officer, and, then and a he farmer. retired quite early yeah. and became a, a farmer. And never came to see any of your He plays. didn't, no. Right. Didn't. Yeah. Did you ever ask him to? I don't think I did, right. really, because I think the big rejection with him was he was away for three years when I was 10 or 11. He was in Southeast Asia in command of a destroyer. And I guess he could have come back. He could also have asked his family out there, but he didn't. And he didn't ask my mother out there either. And when he came back, he was a stranger. I had become slightly intimidated by horses, which is a big thing. And all I needed, really, was my father to say, it's fine, it's absolutely fine, Mm. and help me. But actually, he did the opposite. And he was contemptuous of the fact that I was nervous. Curiously, years later, I became, I loved riding, but long after um, he had had any influence on me. So from that point on, he was, I wouldn't say he was overtly contemptuous of me, but he certainly didn't embrace my world in any way at all. And your world, I suppose, must have been a bit of an unconscious turn away from his. I'm curious about Brooke, because you wrote to him after you saw... I did. Leah, yeah. I, did. I wrote to him. He lived in Holland Park, just off High Street, Ken. Right. Lovely house. And I wrote to him, and it was sort of fan letter. Yeah. And I was then working at... No, it, was, it wasn't up straight after Lear. It was when I was working. I'd started working as a director in Leicester. Right. And I wrote to him, saying, you know, great admirer, and would you, could I possibly come and talk to you? And to my astonishment, he wrote back, said, yeah, yeah, you know, drop it. And I went to see him, and he was, he was wonderful, actually. Really? He was wonderful, very generous, very Brookian, and everything that, I wanted, there wasn't a, a scrap of disappointment. Um, he, was, he was the full deal. These people who've sort of, oh, again, forgive me if this sounds a bit naff or cheap or something, but there's people who've taken you in. John Neville, uh, Clive Perry, giving yes. you, changing your life in this way. Peter Brook being yeah. so welcoming to you. I mean, he could easily have said, no, yes, or the did. meeting could have been difficult or something, no, something could have been glitchy in it. And it wasn't. Yep. These, these, these ways in which this very interesting business that, that you and I both deal with, the theatrical family, you know, for want of a better word, has, seems like anyway, given you... It's, it's been... I've had a succession of patrons. Right. So there was Clyde Perry, uh, John Neville, 
Stuart Burge, who really got me to Nottingham. And then Margaret Matheson, my friend Margaret Matheson, who was running Play for Today. And when they, she said that she wanted to retire from Play for Today, and she suggested me to take over. This is late 70s. So I became a television producer. And I was so cocky, I said, yes, yes, I'll do the job, but I'd like to direct as, as well. So I employed some very good directors and picked up a few tips. And then Peter Hall. It's extraordinary. We talk about luck a lot in the theatre, don't we? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of fetishised luck. Yes. On the, on the opening nights, this weird thing of, you know, good luck. You work for months and months. You work your bollocks off. Yes. And then opening night, you seem to pretend that it's a matter of chance, actually. <laughs> and well, only because you know that anything could go wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, and I, I, I find that sort of... A delightful anomaly. Um, But for me, the luck is who you meet on the way. Right. And I remember, did you know Kent Tynan? No. No. Well, I never knew him in his absolute peak of his his, um, fame, but I knew him quite well. And at his funeral, Tom Stockler did eulogy and said to me, Kent Tynan was part of my luck. Because it was Ken who had picked up mm. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern right. and got Olivier to put it on a national. And, and I'm sure in, in your life you've had people who've part been of part my of your life. It's a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? And you do have to have... Uh, it was funny, I was thinking, thinking of all the productions of yours that I've seen over the years. I mean, I, I could name many, but for example, Guys and Dolls, I remember seeing comedians, which I would love to ask you about, the Trevor Griffiths play, which you did, at the, uh, you commissioned and did at Nottingham Playhouse early on, Jonathan Price. I saw that on TV, I remember that. Oh, that was when I was running Play for Today. Ah, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's an excellent way of <laughs> combining the two or two worlds. But then, of course, I remember that imperish, imperishable memory of... of of, of Lear with Ian Holm, and I remember Racing Demon and mm. Invention of Love and all these uh, tons of other ones besides. You know, I remember I've done productions which have been really wonderful, genuinely thrilling, I think, for everybody involved, but also for the audience. They haven't been terribly storied, some of them, just because they didn't have that, whatever that part of whatever Ken Tynan was for Tom Stoppard, that sense of something or somebody elevating it to a point where it gets noticed and catches the light from all around it. And that's that's more than okay. But I absolutely understand what you mean about, you know, that idea that someone is part of your luck. It's a yes. wonderful, it's a wonderful notion. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, that was the first part of my chat with Richard Eyre. Please come back and join me for the second part. It's, it's such extraordinary stuff. I think, you know, if you enjoyed that stuff about his father, his extraordinary father, and then his revisiting of father figures through Hamlet, through King Lear, through Peter Brook, throughout his life. Oh, and I didn't even get to ask him about a famous father incident. We talk about the first time he directed Hamlet very famously with Jonathan Price and all that stuff about you know, the regurgitation of Hamlet's father, the ghost, through the body of Hamlet. But I never got to ask him about the second time he directed Hamlet at the National Theatre with Daniel Day-Lewis playing the prince, who famously, of course, thought he saw the ghost of his real father, Cecil Day-Lewis, while he was doing the play and promptly left the theatre and left the production and had to be replaced by Ian Charlson, who had played Sky Masterson for Richard in Guys and Dolls. I wish I'd got to ask Richard about that, but there are sometimes the conversation moves on and you can't come back to it, and uh, we'll have to cover it in another conversation. That's just the way these things go. But there'll be so many more extraordinary things to enjoy in the second part of our chat. Which major theatre director gave him a fearful bollocking? The story behind his legendary production of Guys and Dolls, how he managed to turn the Olivier Theatre, a famously cavernous space, into a proscenium arch using only light for that production. Which seminal actor in his life reduced him to helpless tears when he directed him in John Gabriel Bortman? What his experience was like um, writing his very first play at the age of, I think, sort of 78 or 79 for the Hampstead Theatre just last year. Um, Which major American gymnast he wants to cast in The Tempest and what he thinks of himself over the course of his career and whether the extraordinary achievements of his life are any real consolation. Please come back and join me for the second part of my chat. It's a doozy. It really is. It's really good stuff. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line right to Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Seems plain, sad, and funny. That's stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He knows that there's no money. Being stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. 
This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.